So here we are, fourth Sunday in Advent. This week the theme is love. As I keep saying, Advent is important because it reminds us that Christmas is important, but it's not the point. And Advent, in Advent we prepare for the Christ of history, who was born on Christmas Day, but it invites us to take seriously the whole of the Gospels, not just the birth and, the, and all the death, uh, which we tend to do. We tend, tend to leave most of it out, really. And, uh, and in doing so, when we in, read about and encounter the Christ in history, then we're invited to meet the Christ in mystery, the spirit of the crucified and risen one in our lives today. And we know where to look for that by looking and reading, at the, reading the Gospels, which then helps us know what we look for when Christ in majesty comes, however we understand that. That is the purpose of Advent. And so we have lit these candles of peace and hope and joy and now love. Pathetic little candles in the world we look at, but candles that remind us of hope despite the evidence. So love, what is love? And how do you experience God's love? Here's a good question, isn't it? So I invite you to turn around and talk to your neighbour for a moment about what is love and where do you experience God's love? Chat to your neighbour for a moment. It doesn't have to be a long conversation. All right. Any ideas you'd like to share? Sharing of community and love within that community, worshiping our Lord. Yep, it's a very good answer. Children. Children. Absolutely. Even when they're grown up. <laughs> Any other ideas? Death. Death. Say more. That's enough, alright? God's many blessings. So that's how we experience God's love. Uh, We're given some Bible passages today to think about God's love and what love is. And you would hope that on that we might have something helpful like 1 Corinthians 13, but no such luck. Uh, So instead I'm going to talk about the three prophets that we're given today. Micah, Elizabeth and Mary. People who, out of their experience, speak in the power of the Spirit and invite us into God's love. So first of all, Micah. Now this is one of the two passages for Micah that are very well known. And this is the passage which is, talks about the Messiah, the, the, new, uh, the true King of David being born in Bethlehem. And so we understand that from our Christian perspective to mean that everyone expected the Messiah to be born in Bethlehem. In fact, that wasn't true in Jesus' time. It's still not true of Jews today. This is a a kind of minority opinion uh, within the many traditions around who the Messiah would be and where the Messiah would come from. Uh, And it became our tradition because the Gospel writers latched onto this passage from Micah to make sense of what had happened in the story of Jesus. So who was Micah and and what was he offering at this time? 
So Micah was uh, a prophet in Jerusalem at the, at the time of the Assyrians. So the Assyrians had just rolled into town, which wasn't a good thing in any way, shape or form. They had just swept out of Assyria, which is kind of in the Syrian region, and had kind of crashed across to the coast, had taken out all the kingdoms in Lebanon, Samaria. Uh, the northern kingdom of Israel was forever destroyed. Samaria was destroyed. The ten tribes were scattered, never to coalesce again. Uh, and then they came down into Judea. And there they took the 30-something strongholds, uh, quickly obliterated them, and surrounded Jerusalem, strangling hope, strangling life, just slowly strangling all that happened in that city until they would surrender and or die. That was what the situation that faced Micah and the king Hezekiah and the people of Jerusalem. Hopelessness. Hopelessness. Nothing could stop these Assyrians. Nothing had stopped them. Nothing would stop them. And in the face of that, Micah says, with what is called prophetic imagination, that a new king, a true king, I'm not entirely sure what Hezekiah thought of this prophecy, like in some ways it was a prophecy of hope, but it was a little damning on his kingship as well. Most of the time the kings weren't super happy with what the prophets were saying. Uh, the true king, both in the line of David, but also in the nature of David, would be born in Bethlehem. Bethlehem was overrun with Assyrians. It was one of the strongholds that had fallen. In this place, that had Assyrians everywhere, would be born the new king. It's a ridiculous prophecy. But it was a prophecy of hope for those people in Jerusalem being strangled of hope. Just imagine what that prophecy was like for them. Laughable, ridiculous. And yet, somehow held in there the promise of God's relentlessly faithful love. That even in this direst of moments, God was still faithful. Despite the evidence, despite the evidence that all was lost, God remains faithful. So the first thing we can say about God's love is it is relentlessly faithful. Relentlessly faithful. And then our second passage is the story of Mary going to Elizabeth, which is a really interesting story for a whole lot of reasons. For example... It's a story about two women, which is a remarkable thing. There are no men in this story at all. I mean, Zechariah is mentioned because it's his house, but he's not in the story. It's one of the very few stories in the, or anywhere in the scriptures which are just about women without a man present to kind of give it legitimacy. So... Here we have a story of two women. And while Elizabeth is by far the social superior, she is the wife of a priest, she is older, she lives in Judah. So 
She has all the honour. She is by far the superior person. And Mary comes to her, a young girl from Samaria, which is kind of out the back, and in a poxy little town within that area called Nazareth, which is essentially a group of caves on a hillside. So, and her husband, husband-to-be, is a carpenter who's not exactly up in the social strata. So in the honour stakes, everything is on Elizabeth, and Mary has nothing. And yet, when she arrives, out of her experience of being barren, and then now pregnant, her disgrace because she was barren, taken away... Out of that experience, Elizabeth is able to exclaim as we heard this morning. And so we have this beautiful picture. This is a more traditional picture. I like this one from an African artist setting it in an African context. Mary's the one in blue because Mary always wears blue. And then we have this one which is this deeply intimate moment between these two women. And out of this deeply intimate moment, both Elizabeth and Mary prophesy about God's love. Now Mary's prophecy is called Mary's Song, and we're going to say it in a minute. And it's a really interesting song. It is a dangerous song. It would have been dangerous then, it should be dangerous now. I think the reason we miss that it's dangerous is because we, the descendants of the British Empire, have been singing that song at Evensong at other, and other times for the last several hundred years. Beautifully sung. I, joined, I liked it when I was growing up. We'd go to Evensong and sing Mary's song, the Magnificat. It's a very interesting thing when that empire sings that song. Because it's not a song for the empire. It was a song for those under the empire. If we take those words seriously, what on earth did we think was going to happen? We, the powerful, the rich, were going to be sent away empty. Like that is not a good it's not a good thing for the people in charge. It's not a good pe- thing for the British. It's not a good thing for any empire to sing those words. And yet we sang those words for centuries. I just think, we just spiritualise that. Oh, well, it doesn't really mean what it seems to think. It just, you know, it's about, you know, it's nice things. We're going to make it nice. Mary's song is not a nice song. It is a song of praise and protest. It is a song, a dangerous song, for those who live under empire, like Mary and Elizabeth did. Mary absolutely lived under empire. A nobody from a nobody town, from the hill country, absolutely dominated by Rome and the wealthy based in Jerusalem. Their lives were controlled and dictated to. And out of that, she sings this song. And it was more than just a song. As one of the commentators who happened to be a woman commented, Mary taught her son well. And if you want to know what that, son, what that song looks like lived out, look at how Jesus lived. Look at his opening statement. 
Luke 4, where he uses Isaiah to say, this is what I'm on about. And if you want to know what empire does when people start singing that song and living it out, we'll go to the end of the story. When the Pharisees and the Sadducees get together and they say, this man is too dangerous. He keeps honouring and blessing the wrong people, the poor, the tax collectors, the prostitutes, all the people who are supposed to be on the outside and under the foot. He keeps raising up. If he keeps doing that, if he keeps living his mother's song, we're in trouble. He has to die. Mary's song is a dangerous song. And that's the second thing about God's love. It's dangerous. We like to think it's nice. It's not nice. It's dangerous. If we take it seriously, we will end up living and doing things that will get us into trouble. So, we are offered three prophets who teach us about God's love. And they teach us that God's love is faithful, relentlessly faithful, and dangerous. So do we dare then say Mary's song? Are we willing to join in with those who have prayed it, but this time knowing that it is dangerous?